This is James Fox, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. The school holidays have arrived in my household, and Let's Make Art, a new podcast sponsor, has been a real smash hit. Their custom art boxes have gone down a treat with not only the little, but the big kids in my house as well. Whether it's a miserable day and you're stuck indoors, or you want to just have a chill day at home, but enjoy the sun outside, there really is a custom art box for you. Anyone can have an art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits and supplies for a variety of different activities. Whether like me, you're a total beginner, an absolute amateur or you've mastered the arts, the supplies and tutorials in each art box, they are designed to encourage, support and enhance your experience with art. Go to letsmakeart.com and start your next art project today and be sure to use promo code UFO art in the checkout and you will save 20% off your order. That's a huge 20% off. I've posted my special link in the show notes so you can go to zen.ai forward slash UFO art for 20% off. And thank you to Let's Make Art for sponsoring this episode. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and joining me for his third appearance, our now joint record holder on the podcast, you can see him on video folks, uh, is author and remote viewer. You might remember him from our previous interviews discussing resonance or remote viewing. I have Simeon Hines. Sim, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Andy. Great to see you for the first time in one of our conversations here. Yes, it's uh, and Dan is going to really appreciate this one because if you're watching on YouTube, it's already set up for YouTube as well, so less for him to do in terms of editing and stuff. So um, hope everyone enjoys this, and I'm looking forward to it because, uh, Sim, you've got a new book out, Dark Matter Monsters, Cryptids, yes. Ball Lightning, and the Science of Secret Life Forms. You are very well prepared. There you go with the picture of it too. Uh, really interesting book, and I was saying to you before we hit record that I love the way it's written because an idiot like me can understand some really difficult topics that you're you're presenting and they're presented yeah. really clearly and really well in a way that I go, ah, okay, I can see how that's connected to this. But I've got a lot of questions for you and, and the audience did too. So I want to get right into things. So at the beginning of the book in the preface, you mentioned as a child, your mother read you the book, Where the Wild Things Are by Morris Sendak. Yeah. Um, and that you knew this was a story. And it wasn't real, but in the real world, there there are monsters out there as we know them in these tales. Do you believe that over millennia and over centuries, many of those tales that we now think of or know as fantasy are actually rooted in, in truth, but the storytelling and changes in society, we've kind of lost that connection to, to what they once were? Andy, that's a great question. Again, thanks again for having me here today. Um, I have been thinking about that question as I wrote the book. Obviously, those of us who grew up in modern societies who are around our age group, you would have been taught that those childhood stories were just fictional or anecdotal, maybe mm. even metaphorical. You know, they're not really real. And I've always walked around in the woods, in the forest. I've hiked throughout the United States, especially now that I live in the West, most of the time by myself, I've backpacked out there, many of the national parks. I've been there with groups and I've been there by myself. And I really never thought twice that there could be anything more dangerous out there than perhaps a poisonous snake, uh, a bear, 
perhaps a mountain lion occasionally. I'm talking in my part of the world in, in North America. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've never encountered anything other than bears or snakes and things like that by my own personal experience. But I think your question is really a good one because what I think has really gone on here um, is that uh, is that a little too loud? I mean, that's pretty noticeable. I'll is keep talking. Let's forget about it. Uh, yeah, yeah, go on. Doesn't bother me. So what I've that's exactly what the conclusion I've come to, Andy, is I think what happened was these creatures and cryptids, as we call them, these are sort of hidden types of life forms that science hasn't fully recognized yet. What I think has gone on, and I, I feel even myself in middle age here that I was unprepared for this, even being associated with UFO, UFO topics, studying remote viewing, being involved with this community, I wasn't prepared for the truth of what is really out there. What we did as a society over centuries is we relegated these encounters to stories and then even kind of glossed them over, sugarcoated them a little bit to make them appropriate for children. Yeah. And we called them children's stories. And so just like you're saying, we'll read these stories to children about big hairy monsters being out there. And I'm not saying that all Bigfoot are monsters. I don't want to imply that they're all dangerous. It's, it's far from the case. But the genre as a whole, the, the whole topic of cryptids, where we do have a whole variety of encounters, it turns out that they're really out there. And what I think has gone on is our psychological, collective psychological defense mechanisms have kicked in to push them away so that even people who've encountered these creatures, they either won't remember it later, they'll push it out of their minds as something that never happened, or um, it'll just uh, turn into something that's sort of an unknown so that we don't talk about it. It's just so far off the scale. It's beyond, almost beyond UFOs. Uh, because we're familiar with lights in the sky. We see planes, we see objects, we see satellites. Hmm. We see the International Space Station come over. So we can sort of, it, it, isn't that kind of weird? We can put UFOs and UAP into a category of things that are seen often in the sky, though they're seen on the ground, as we're all aware. There are trace cases, and it's a whole big subject too. But that sort of fits into the area of objects in the sky that are unidentified. But we don't even have a category for anything the size of Bigfoot, for example, in our experience, our realms of experience, to kind of say, well, it's kind of like this, maybe like a bear, but a lot bigger. It's so beyond what bears are like that it doesn't fit that category. Uh, your mind wants to turn just the Bigfoot side of cryptids into maybe an escaped gorilla. And so that is, I think, I think you're correct. We we took these experiences and because we can't process it, it doesn't fit into any category unless you go back thousands of years, perhaps to the Bible. It doesn't fit anywhere. So we just say, well, it's a childhood mythological story. And we tell it to children. And then for people who've actually encountered these life forms, whatever they turn out to be, uh, the closest thing that you could associate them with is where the wild things are. Yes. 
Just a quick note on the the noise. It was a chainsaw that was on outside. That uh, should be stopping anyway, folks. We didn't just ignore that. Yeah, it wasn't. Packing. I can hear them packing up right now. Yeah. So yeah, we'll just keep going anyway. But that that yeah, was yeah, really no interesting. You mentioned about you know there are these things potentially that we can't see or can't understand, even UFOs that we do see, but potentially we we don't understand or we can't categorize properly exactly what they are or where they're from. But even then, there are things around us, like you say, we we can't see and we don't understand. But there are things around us we can't see we do understand. Like, I know that I have Wi-Fi on my phone because a signal is coming from one location to my phone and giving me the internet. But I understand on a base level how that works. So there's no there's no scariness there. Whereas if someone had just invented some really basic form of radio and they picked up radio waves that were bouncing around the sky, they might not know what they're from or why they're there, but they have an idea that something is causing a reaction. And I wonder, is it similar with some of these objects and, and entities and beings that they, they drift in and out and we sometimes pick up the signal because of a scenario or a place or a time and it just happens to be you know, the right the right environment for that to happen. And that's why you get a crop circle, a Bigfoot sighting, a UFO sighting, a ghost sighting. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, and on a couple different levels. Uh, the, the, on, on one level, we cannot really talk about things that are not part of the known very well. So what we do, and this is something that sociologist Dr. Ron Westrom of Eastern Michigan State University has pointed out many times. He did this with his study of meteorites, Ernst Friedrich Florence Kaladny, how, you know, meteorites were originally considered to be like peasant folklore back around the 1800s. And it wasn't until Kaladny and a whole, a number of other interested scientists as they were called back then maybe natural philosophers i'm not sure how they would be considered at the time but we would call them scientists now now meteorites were considered folklore it was not considered to be real uh it did not fit into the aristotelian paradigm and aristotle believed that there was nothing in motion beyond the moon the, the moon marked the boundary of where things happened for us on the earth because the earth was the center of the universe. Beyond the moon, there was no activity. The planets were thought to be mounted on huge crystal spheres that sort of orbited around us, mm-hmm. but they were considered static too. So the sublunary area was considered where everything happened. And because meteorites did not fit into that thought process at the time that cosmology they weren't considered to be real and i don't think we're any different andy i don't think we're any different now uh what ron western pointed out is unless we have some known category that's considered socially acceptable we can't even talk about these phenomena and that's why meteorites were, were considered peasant folklore for the longest time until there were some serious studies and and huge meteor showers uh, around i believe 1802 1804 where there was just so much evidence that it was overwhelming and they stopped throwing away the meteorites from museums as they were. There are no old meteorites past the 1800s because they were all thrown away from museums. They were considered to be volcano stones or stones that were thrown up from lightning strikes. So it's our current paradigm that allows us to start branching out into the unknown. And with this topic, it took me even the longest time to sort of see it as being 
real. So what I'm wondering is, like you're saying, is it the right moment and the right time that someone's picking something up? They're just at the right place and they're open to this for some reason. It's often little children while hiking with families that see them first. Uh, you could walk by one of these creatures and not see it because it's not in your mental vocabulary. We're all familiar with that concept of inattentional blindness. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen this demonstrated many times at the types of conferences and seminars that you and I would go to UFO conferences and so forth, that the way our brain works is we filter so much out. There's that famous film that I think came out of that research at MIT where uh, you see basketball players in black or white t-shirts yeah. and a gorilla comes across and you don't, I didn't see it. They've, the, I was in a conference I believe it was in New Mexico, Albuquerque area. And they said, okay, just watch this. Count how many times the balls are passed between the black t-shirts and the white t-shirts. And mm -hmm. you do not see the guy in the gorilla suit. I didn't see it myself the first time. And they say, hey, watch again. I think only a couple of people raised their hand having seen it. Maybe 80% of the audience doesn't see the grill. So how likely are we to see something that we don't expect to be there? Uh, if you talk to witnesses to these phenomena, they'll often say, well, they thought those sounds were just ordinary animals and the howling was a little weird, but maybe it was an owl or a coyote. You see, you fit it into what you know. Yeah. And then maybe it was a bear, except when you go back and look at the prints, they're human like prints that are way too large. So it, a lot of it has to do with what our sensory apparatus has been you know, used to perceiving over the course of our lives. And you're certainly not going to bring in childhood sto children's stories into that. This is a very challenging topic for everyone. It's, you know, Andy, this is a lot closer to us, the topic of cryptids, than even UFOs and extraterrestrials for many people. Simply because you do not expect these to come up to your house if you live in a rural area uh, in North America. And you have them in Europe, and I think you have them in the UK too, though they may not be as common. You don't expect these to kind of come up to you in a space where you feel like you're sort of the apex predator as we've been taught. You know, we, we've all been taught that we're the most developed life form. We're the most developed intelligence by our culture and by our religions that we're part of. So just in the title of the book, you know, cryptids, ball lightning, signs of secret life forms, we know there's Bigfoot UFOs and other phenomena discussed. Where do you even start piecing together how the different phenomena are connected when you're looking to put together the book? What I'm looking to do in, in dark matter monsters is there are underlying phenomena that people encounter, whether it's a Bigfoot encounter, it's a UFO encounter, it's a crop circle encounter, and even to some extent RV, because we know that Hal Putoff and Russell Targ told us that when Yuri Geller was at Stanford Research Institute, he was their first test subject before Pat Price or Ingo Swan. Mm -hmm. As many people are aware, they, he was in the U.S. for six weeks. They encountered cryptids around their homes. This idea of a hitchhiker effect is not new. But uh, if that's the right way to think about it, I mean, people picked up something from being around Yuri Geller. Now, you have to think about this for a second. They saw giant crows at the end of their beds inside their homes with windows closed. 
they saw different types of little UFOs and creatures and things like this. This sort of effect we've heard associated with Skinwalker Ranch goes back farther than Skinwalker Ranch. It goes back to SRI is the oldest date I know about it. Associating something like you would think not associated, remote viewing, resonant viewing associated with seeing cryptids, strange creatures, things that don't fit in any categories we're used to. And that's just like an exposure to, to something else, that other, and it opens up the door. Right. That's how I think about it. And so this is why these topics are all connected. And we had this Twitter question. Uh, you probably saw it in the feed. Someone said, well, why, are, why in the world would you connect Bigfoot to UFOs? It's because people see them together. They see them around the same time period, the same locations, even getting off of UFOs. Uh, sometimes in these waves, as I mentioned in my response to the tweet in Stan Gordon's book, Silent Invasion, and his uh, research into southwestern Pennsylvania wave of UFO and Bigfoot sightings, it all happened at the same time. So what this suggests to me is that there's some sort of fundamental underlying principles here at work that no matter which of these topics you're interested in, it's going to lead you back to the same sort of phenomena. Now, in the past, I've looked at parallel realities, multiverses, and that is one larger theoretical explanation for what's going on here is that once you start opening the door to any of these phenomena, you're opening up several doors at the same time. You're going into other rooms that you haven't experienced before where there's other phenomena that your culture didn't prepare you to believe was real. But concretely, to answer your question of how I dealt with it in, in, in Dark Matter Monsters, the book, I'm looking at the phenomena that are associated with coherent matter. And those are all the same phenomena, whether it's ball lightning, sudden temperature changes, uh, anti-gravity effects. Those are all features of coherent matter. Uh, the literature is pretty well established in this. But for a variety of reasons, since the advent of what we call cold fusion, and it goes back before Fleischmann and Pons at the University of Utah, uh, back to the 50s to a researcher named Winston H. Bostick, uh, all the way back to Tesla. And then it goes back, as we've learned from uh, George Eagley from Hungary, Dr. George Eagley, who also researched. It, it, it preceded Tesla by a number of decades. The World War I seemed to have really stopped a lot of the research. Some, in, some of the researchers were killed and so forth. This goes mm -hmm. back to pre-World War we're looking at alternative forms of matter that are associated with ball lightning and the whole phenomena that's uh, the, the characteristics of ball lightning. But for whatever reason it is, whether it's a conspiracy, which I'm not really, you know, a firm believer in, not necessarily a conspiracy. We as a Western society have pushed away all of this research that we associate with Nikola Tesla. We've pushed it away and we pushed it away when Fleischmann and Pons came up with their result in 1989 at the University of Utah. And had a press conference because that's what their university, they didn't want the press conference. The university did. They wanted patent rights. You have mm. to show prior knowledge. Okay, so then they get this huge blowback against cold fusion. And it even goes up in our country to the level of the federal government where uh, George Bush at the time senior has a presidential commission on cold fusion. And they hire MIT to look into it. And these guys say, no, we can't reproduce it. And a lot of people couldn't because they didn't set up the experiments the right way. It's a pretty finicky, it's a particular reaction. It can be kind of finicky for a variety of reasons we push this away but all of these phenomena andy i'm convinced at least that's my point of view here uh, I'm, I'm willing to look at alternative arguments what we call paranormal 
almost everything that we call paranormal is a relative of coherent matter, period. A type of condensed matter where you get alternative types of interactions that you normally don't see with just normally gases, liquids, and so excuse me, solids or even plasmas. Something beyond it. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's Creator Network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's Creator Network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they've truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. I'm going to come to, to Ball Lightning, and I'm glad you talked about coherent matter uh, phenomena because that's yeah. something I'm going to ask you to dive into soon. Sure. I want to know, though, Bigfoot, uh, for many people, is likely one of two things, uh, a species of ape-like creature that we haven't really encountered or categorized here on the planet, or... Some people, like you say, have seen them coming off of UFOs. They are from different dimensions, realities. They slip in and out, and they're here sometimes, and then they're not the next. In the book, I think it argues that both of those could be correct, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive, do they? Exactly right, Amy. These are not mutually exclusive categories. You know, the way we're also, the way we think, it's got to be this or it's got to be that, right? Uh, it could be entirely a terrestrial species, a type of either a relic ape or a type of relic human, you know, a, a hominoid. But it's been here so long that it's evolved to work with these natural principles of energy that we're just rediscovering and called cold fusion. These cold fusion principles are just already built into nature. And uh, we know that from, you know, the work of uh, Dr. Takiyaki Matsumoto. This is in a book that just came out this week too. It's same time timers are on my book about the steps to discovery of electronuclear collapse. Now, I won't go into all the arguments there, but if you read his book, he says that what we see in cold fusion is already what we see going out in, in stars, in black holes, neutron stars. It's just a small-scale version of what we already see going far away in the galaxy. And so if that's true, these are fundamental principles that are built into nature, and it's not surprising, really, if you think about it, that there be life forms on Earth that learn to incorporate these into their biology and chemistry so that they have what seem to us like paranormal abilities. And so the answer to the question of whether it's an ape or a human or an extraterrestrial, it's something, it's some sort of combination of all of that. And I'm not doing that as a way of escaping the question. It's just that what people report, and this is, I got this, this is so surprising. When I started going to some of these Bigfoot conferences and some of them weren't very far away from Boulder, Colorado, because this is an area in the Rocky Mountains where people have Bigfoot experiences. 
And when I went to my first conference in Bailey, Colorado, nearly every speaker that got up said exactly what you just said. First, I thought it was some sort of relic primate. And then I thought it was an undiscovered human. And then I finally realized it's some sort of paranormal human. Uh, so these researchers were the ones that I was listening to them and I corresponded with them later who told me about their paranormal experiences around Bigfoot, you know, things like levitation, time, space, uh, dilation, brain fog, all sorts of weird effects that you sort of associate with UFO contact or extraterrestrial contact. It's the same thing that's happening around Bigfoot. You know, your cameras and batteries stop working. Uh, you, uh, you start feeling confused. You may have a couple hours of time loss, all, all these weird things that, I mean, this was the most surprising thing to me, Andy, is that all of these phenomena that I had associated with UFO encounters and experiences that people have in crop circles, which mm -hmm. have a UFO link, you know, they sort of made sense there. But Bigfoot, I mean, why would you expect Bigfoot to have the same sort of effects on people as a UFO uh, nearby? And the reason would be is that it's dealing with the same sort of fundamental scientific principles underneath, which is some sort of gravitational changes, gravitational collapse uh, at a, a nucleonic level, uh, some sort of changes in space time, even similar to what Hal Putoff has talked about in the conferences I've heard him uh, present. You know, he calls it space time engineering. And the people in the cold fusion area, and that's his, that's how put ups and other physicists who work with him. That's his explanation for how some of these UFOs create propulsion is their space time metric engineering is the name for it. Actually changing the space time field. Well, the people in the cold fusion area, going back to Soviet research that we've uh, been able to locate even in the past couple of months, call it vacuum engineering, vacuum engineering. I think space-time metric engineering and quantum vacuum engineering are the same thing. And that would mean that we're dealing with the same principles. And that's how I link these phenomena together. And even at a phenomenolo phenomenological level, the symptoms are the same. Again, sudden temperature changes, changes, kind of feeling that things are weird all of a sudden, uh, memory loss. It's, it's the same sort of symptoms. And I think it's because it's the same sort of principle. It also sounds very similar to some of the things we hear happening, as you mentioned in the book Skinwalker Ranch, yeah. where you hear about dire wolves and strange, huge humanoid type creatures coming through portals and, and such. And we've now got some very serious scientists and studies, again, like you mentioned in the book, uh, George Knapp, Colm Kelleher, James Lakatsky's book Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, talked about the, the OSAP studies and what happened at the ranch as well. How connected do you really think all of these things are, are, are they loosely connected or do you think they're far more part of one greater whole than we would imagine? Right. That is the question. I would say they're connected at a, not loosely, not overly tightly, kind of somewhere in between a medium level of connection. Uh, they're all tapping into some of these same fundamental, fundamental aspects of quantum vacuum changes where the fundamental constants that we're used to staying very constant, like electrical capacitance, magnetic permeability, things that are kind of some of the one, some of the fundamental constants in physics, there are about 20 of those constants 
the fine constant you might have heard of. There are all these things that in our day-to-day life, our section of the cosmos, those constants are the same. But if you create variation in electrical capacitance and magnetic, what's called permittivity, magnetic permeability, you get immediately changes in the speed of light because the speed of light is based on permittivity and permeability. So our experience as modern people, it's probably the same for me in the US as it is for the U and the K, same fundamental 20 constants in physics, right? And this is something that Max Tegmark pointed out in his book, The Mathematical Universe, Our Mathematical Universe, about why he believed the multiverse interpretation of quantum mechanics was the, the most direct one, the most one that's most likely, is because if you change any of those constants, you could easily create alternative realities in the same space time that we're in right here. We might not even interact with the life that's in those realities with just slight changes to any of those constants. It's in his book. So when you look at the phenomena that happen out Skinwalker Ranch and other areas, Skinwalker isn't the only one in the uh, in their first book, uh, The Hunt for the Skinwalker. Mm-hmm. Keller and Knapp mention four or five other locations with similar sorts of phenomena going around. One of them was right here in Colorado. I don't know the exact location, but they gave it as being in Elbert County. And then we had where the East Eddy Ranch is on the east side of the Cascades in Washington State. And then some of our listeners, viewers here may have heard about Marley Woods, Ted Phillips, study of Marley Woods, uh, a ranch in Missouri that had the same phenomena, even more extreme sometimes than Skinwalker Ranch. So you have these locations where you have these phenomena going on. Uh, again, you have UFOs, UF, UAPs. We've seen it at Skinwalker Ranch in the TV series, or you can read James Lukatsky's, you know, excellent book. I see you have a copy of it right there. Uh, For the viewers, yeah, that's uh Yeah, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Now, initially when I saw that, Andy, I thought, what, what could that could be about? What, what kind of title is that? You read it, you see they encounter these werewolves, these dark uh, objects that emit mm. a lot of cold and create a lot of instant fear. It's even almost impossible to walk, approach them, which people have, uh, researchers who've been around Bigfoot have said the same thing. You, you'll hear where the sounds are coming from. You literally cannot walk closer than a certain distance, which is very similar to what those three DIA analysts recount with that sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, black hole-like object on the path yeah. ahead of the... Yeah. So the re- these really do seem connected. Now, I don't want to be the one to say these are all exactly the same thing. I'm not a reductionist. I'm not trying to explain this away. To answer your question, I know I'm being kind of long-winded about this. I think that the life forms, the technology, and the physics around this suggest that the- these sorts of types of life are tapping into the same frequencies that we get around ball lightning. And I'm not saying they're literally the same thing, but they seem to be part of the same reality. They do seem to be part of the same reality at these various portal locations, whatever you'd like to call them, where these phenomena happen. I'm sure it's other parts of the world too, but maybe we haven't heard about it. Maybe some of the governments don't want to share the, the information about this. I mean, the fact that you have the Defense Intelligence Agency looking at Skinwalker Ranch 
uh, as a possible national security threat. Uh, you know, if you've listened to the people we've heard on various podcasts talking about Skinwalker Ranch, they did suggest that maybe some of the activity there was being caused by other governments or something because there were injuries to the researchers. I don't know if that's true or not, but you can see the type of thinking that's going on mm. in the heads of the people out there. So I think there's a lot more research that's gone into this than we found out about. And uh, even Lekatsky says that it was such a hot potato at the Pentagon for OSAP to be looking into dogmen and Bigfoot-like creatures at Skinwalker Ranch that they couldn't get any more funding for it. Because it goes, again, it goes back to your first question right at the beginning of our conversation here. Yeah. It's just so off the freaking charts of what we consider to be real. It doesn't fit into the bureaucratic organizational schemes of modern society that are run by committees and have to have annual funding and so forth. It almost can't fit into one of those committee meetings because people won't even know how to talk about it. It might be too scary to them or too traumatizing to want to talk about. And we have to consider the possibility that it brings up experiences they've had that they don't want to think about having a picnic with their family in the woods. I mean, as Lekatsky tells us, they saw these cryptids back in their yards back in Maryland when they mm -hmm. came back from Skinwalker Ranch. Well, maybe other people are experiencing it too, and you just don't even want to go there. So you're not going to get funding for it. So end a discussion on the subject. And that's what we're dealing with is something beyond our current paradigm to the extent that we're simply not good at processing it, even at an individual level or at a group level. It's like levels of understanding where even those conversations you have with friends and family about UFOs, okay, I can have that conversation. Well, what if they're not from space? All right, okay, I'm listening. Tell me more. And then you start to talk about different realities, dimensions, different entities and different you know, spiritual beings. And they might still be in the conversation. And then you try and get to a point where you have that umbrella phenomena to say, what if Bigfoot ghosts, cryptids, you know, fairies, all these angels and demons were all one in the same sort of phenomena and tie UFOs in with that. And it's just too much for people to get to that. And it's like, at what point do people have that natural tapping out? And I think that's where a lot of the, as you say, the scientists and academics who are trying to approach the subject, they still have to do it at a very basic level because there comes a point when you do apply for funding and you say that we're going to go after, you know, dire wolves that are crawling out of portals on a ranch. That's probably a couple of steps too far to secure X amount of millions that you want to actually investigate it. So you pull it back and you pull it back and you pull it back. Um, and that's the same, again, with any of those, those kind of conversations. I do want to ask you a question, though. In your research, do you think that when it comes to Bigfoot and, and those types of cryptids, is witness testimony still the best evidence that we have that these creatures exist? Yes. And uh, this is it's a very good question, because in social science, we consider this to be exploratory research. Social science is a little different than the hard sciences. You're going to just start with something called exploratory research where you don't have any metrics. You don't even have the definition. You're going to look at the topic and see, are there some basic categories? Is there a way to talk about it intelligently? And so you're going to rely on witness testimony, anecdotal research. Now, what really struck me, uh, people will say, well, it's just anecdotal. But you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of anecdotal reports of people who've never spoken to each other before. 
who are encountering the same thing. And this is what struck me looking through all the Bigfoot encrypted encounter stories is the people will say exactly what someone else said from a totally different location in terms of what they experienced. One example, sudden quiet that comes over the forest before the encounter. Even the crickets will stop chirping. Mm. Now that's really weird. Uh, why is that? I mean, when Bigfoot comes around, is it like the, the squirrels and the birds say, hey, the big boss is around, we got to be quiet? Or is it a vibrational resonant change that they just feel like oh, there's a predator around, we should be quiet? But what about crickets? Uh, why would crickets? So someone suggested to me this could be true, that it's some sort of space-time shift where the sounds are not getting to your ears. Maybe the forest isn't quiet, but you're sort of in a different space and you can't hear it. Or they really are getting quiet because they're sensing something that's triggering a defensive mechanism to hide. You know, uh, from a coherent matter perspective, it's like another type of matter is sort of entering your area. And for whatever reason, you those animals. So people who uh, this, but again, Going back to the commonalities, isn't this what we hear often happening around UFO encounters? I just, for example, Terry Lovelace, who I mentioned in the book, author of mm -hmm. Incident Devil's Den. Many people are familiar with his story of going to camp with his Air Force medic buddy, Toby, in the, one of the Arkansas state parks. And they were just outside the boundary, but right close to the park. Well, if you reread his book, Incident Devil's Den, he says they're sitting in the tent. And then I think he says to Toby, hey, you know, isn't it pretty quiet out there? Oh, no, Toby says to him, isn't it? Isn't it why is it so quiet all of a sudden? The, the crickets went away. And uh, I think Terry says back to Toby, oh, don't worry, they'll come back. Right before this huge triangular craft, really huge, comes down. And, uh, well, it's hovering over the field. The next thing they know, they're back in their tent. Um, hours are gone by, and they have memories of being they, right there. They have memories of being inside the triangular craft and not mm. particularly pleasant memories. So, again, is that... Sudden quiet around Bigfoot and Dogman and other cryptids. And there's a whole host of cryptids, by the way. Uh, more and more rare as you go along, but people report these experiences. Is that type of sudden quiet the same as we get around the UFO sightings? I'm assuming because people say it's the same sort of thing, it is. I mean, it could be something else, but it seems to me like the same sort of phenomenon. On a quick side note, I, I'm in contact with Terry Lovelace just now, and he should be on the podcast in September. Um, we're just waiting a week or two, but that's a uh, nice timing mentioning that one. And I noticed he was unmentioned in the book a couple of times, yeah. Um, and his books are obviously quoted. Um, on that that idea of society having this discussion and conversation, and do you think we are there yet in 2022 as a society that people on mass are ready to accept and study? dark matter monsters in a serious way and accept that they're actually part of our reality it's going to be a very big step isn't it uh but even for me it's a very big step uh uh but the evidence points to the reality that they're there they're out there they can uh it, it's the same sort of thing we're going through with ufo reporting to Congress in the U.S. with the National Defense Authorization Bill that mm -hmm. is renewed yearly. And this time we're told just even as uh, two weeks ago when I think it was passed by the House, yeah. 
there has to be a pipeline, a classified pipeline where the Defense Department has to report back to the House and the Senate uh, committees, I guess the intelligence committees, the ones that handle classified material. Yeah. They are demanding that they report anything re- you know, related to UFOs and UAPs. Uh, they don't want it kept secret anymore. And that's because all these pilots that we've heard about, at least from the Navy side, we don't know, again, why the Air Force has been so completely quiet about this, though we can hypothesize. Yeah. But it, yes, and you've talked about this on the show and other, I mean, but the Navy, I mean, we've talked to the, you've ta- had the, the, the witnesses on, uh, people familiar with this material, people like Lou have heard the classified side of it, which the rest of us haven't. Uh, the Congress has said, we're, you know, we're, we're done with this. We want to know what's going on. We want, and I think the and uh, the NDAA mandates that anything uh, that Department of Defense knows about this topic must go to the House and the Senate to, you know, be discussed. So uh, are we ready for it? Um, I think I think we need to be ready for it, whether we are or not. Because we're not going to grow and mature as a society and be able to handle the challenges that we all face as a planet without having these discussions. And whether it's just about UFOs, as Elizondo and Mellon have talked about, where they feel like we need to have a national discussion for our own, you know, the structural health of our society, because we're having pilots and and all sorts of people having experiences with this, which they're because of social stigma, they don't talk about it. And uh, we don't get the information and it could have national security implications. Well, on another level with the cryptids, it's the same sort of thing. If people are being traumatized by their encounters and, and having talked to these witnesses, and I mentioned some in the book, people I've known just around this area in Colorado. I mean, it took 20 years to get one of these witnesses in the book to tell me a story that I didn't even put in the book. Just a couple of weeks ago, I said, to this guy, I said, I need to hear this story. What happened to you out there? It's when he was camping by himself. Mm-hmm. And he was so traumatized by this that he never talked about it, to, even to me, and I've known him for so long. And so if it takes two decades for someone that I've known pretty well, who I met through one of my RV classes, to start talking about it. I mean, it's it's a big deal for people to admit that this has happened, that they've been frightened out there in the woods by something they can't identify. That's a big a step. It's it's a big step with UFOs, I imagine, for people in the armed forces to talk about it too, because you know, when I asked one of the witnesses from the Nimitz incidents, when I talked to him on my YouTube channel, um, how many people in that carrier group knew about these Tic Tacs mm-hmm. and had been talking about them, uh, he put it in the thousands out uh, that one what was it that one Nimitz uh, aircraft carrier? I don't know how many thousand are just on the aircraft carrier mm-hmm. and then in, in, in the whole carrier group. But he said, even though we've only heard maybe 20 or 30 witnesses and we've had more come forward recently. I mean, he put it at thousands would have been talking about it in the Navy. It would have been called scuttlebutt. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the scuttlebutt's going around across the whole carrier group, but he said, of thousands that would have known about it, maybe 20% of the whole personnel on the carrier group, you've only had a small fraction come forward and talk about it because of the damage it could do to their career, promotion time, so forth. Many things could 
inhibit your promotion when you have some sort of review in the military, if you talk to people who've been in the military. So if, you know, and, and this is what Congress said in the UAP task force report, right? Is the yep. sociocultural stigma. So I think that applies to all of these topics. I think we've really been uh, scared, Andy, of publicly talking about it, not you and people who you've had on the podcast. It's opening up. It's obviously opening up. And this is a subject that affects a lot of people, but, the really interesting thing is the more you talk about this, the more witnesses will contact you one way or another and say, you know, I heard you talking about this or I saw you, you know, your YouTube video. I had an experience like this too. And they've never uh, talked about it to anyone before. I'm hoping uh, people, you know, given you talked about that attention test earlier on where the gorilla walks across the basketball court. And I've talked about that on the podcast before. I'm hoping people were so engrossed in what you were saying that they missed the beeping there as one of the trucks were leaving with the chainsaws. So maybe they've they've missed that paying so much attention to you. Apologies for that one, folks. It's just a quick one. Um, did you happen in the last week, Simeon, to catch uh, Gary Nolan on Tucker yes. Carlson? So. That was really interesting because yeah, right. Gary Nolan's a really fascinating character. I mm. spoke to him on the podcast a couple of months ago. He's going to be coming back on in the near Good. future. And he was happy to sit there and talk about potential injuries related to exposure to UFOs, UAP. Yep. Do you see in the research you have done and the cases you have researched any similar types of effects from exposure and you talk about those kind of space-time bubbles or vacuums, whatever it is, people are entering in those quiet spaces Anything similar to do with Bigfoot, ball lightning, and, and other types of exposure? If, like me, you have ever had to go looking for a designer, illustrator, or voiceover artist, it can be difficult to know where to start. That's where the folks at Fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services, with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast, or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5, that's Z-E-N dot A-I slash UFO and the number five, the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description. 
that is all for this week's show thank you very much for listening please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform you can like retweet and subscribe that would all be very much appreciated the shows are being uploaded onto youtube as we speak more and more you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFOUAPAM. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fire. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bread. Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake, I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself, and I climbed out the window after the elf, and I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head, and everything was weird, and everything was red. I called up my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems, and I think I should because it doesn't really scare me. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your-